This is an ABC podcast. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, there were various inquiries in the state of New South Wales into corruption and criminal activity. And there was one man who would regularly be brought in to assist these inquiries. He was a businessman named Lenny McPherson, who was broadly known at the time as the Mr Big of crime. When Lenny McPherson was fronted by the ABC, he would claim to be a humble businessman who was unfairly hounded by the media and Commonwealth police officers. How does someone get such a bad reputation that he's known as a vicious and powerful man? Well, I couldn't imagine them calling me vicious, and I can't say, see where there's any evidence to suggest this. I am a person that if you attack me, I'll attack you back. And that's what I've got a reputation for. If you come up with an axe, I'll grab an axe. But sometimes Lenny would let his ego get the better of him. Would you say you're a bad enemy to me? I would say I'm a very good friend and a bad enemy. Lenny McPherson died in 1996, but he's still remembered today as one of the most powerful criminals of post-war Australia, a brilliant strategist who formed close relations with figures from the Chicago Mafia. Jack Hoisted is back on Conversations. Today, Jack is a true crime journalist and historian, and every once in a while I like to invite Jack on the program to tell a story from Australia's incredibly colourful history of organised crime, and today it is the tale of the notorious Leonard Arthur McPherson, Mr Big, a man who left his fingerprints on so many of the most heinous criminal conspiracies of his time. Welcome back, Jack. G'day, Richard. Good to be back. How powerful was Lenny McPherson in his heyday? Well, he wasn't Mr Big. He was Mr Big enough. He was the sort of first <laughs> among equals. Uh, huge man, by the way. So he was known as the big man. Um, but he, you know, we've, we've, we've covered uh, in conversations, we've covered the life of Stan Smith, a very close uh, associate of, of Lenny McPherson's. And with the fine cotton business, we've, we've also looked at the, the, the life of George Freeman. So this is the third leg of the trifecta, Len McPherson. That was the triumvirate, the team that basically ran Sydney crime from the mid-1960s all the way to the 1990s. So it was sort of divvied up between the three of them. Did they have sort of borders that they respected on each other's territory? Different activities. Um, so Freeman, for example, was involved in gambling. McPherson was involved in construction, uh, extortion, uh, brothels, those sorts of things, also involved in, in gambling. And so, that, yes, they had their own turf, but whenever one was challenged, the other two would come behind them and, and they'd sort it out. So the team, while there are, were other gangs around, the team was unchallenged really through the 70s and 80s. Was he really well known? Was he well known to the public as the Mr Big of Australian crime? Like I can we talked about this in the past. I remember seeing George Freeman on the telly being interviewed by the State of Night or Four Corners and he would again say he was a humble businessman being unfairly victimised mm. by no, yeah. overzealous Commonwealth police officers. Was was Lenny McPherson a bit like that? Oh, look, he couldn't avoid the limelight, but he didn't like it much. Um, uh, so, you know, he would be bailed up outside Royal Commissions, uh, judicial inquiries, uh, court appearances, those sorts of things, and, and he would give his opinion. Not a vicious man, couldn't understand how the word vicious could be used. More it, sinned it, against than sinning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. No, look, if you're going right. to come at me, I'll come at you. But other than that, I'm a, I'm a delightful fellow. I, I, I spoke with an undercover police officer who, who looked long and hard into McPherson and, and, and was an informer and was informing with this particular police officer. And he said of Len that, you know, he'd meet him in a cafe in, in Sydney. And by the time he got there, the police officer, McPherson had basically cleared the entire cafe with his, just his loud, coarse voice and swearing. <laughs> and, and people would look at him and said, make the bad man stop. But you'd look at this huge man sitting there swearing his head off and go, yeah, probably just best that I leave. So by the time... His contact uh, came into uh, into the cafe. The place was empty. Right, with just terrified people fleeing. So he carried an air of menace about him. Yeah, there's definitely an air of menace and an air of coarseness too. So, a Balmain boy who'd grown up in Depression era Balmain as well, 
effing and blinding his way into conversations while genteel people are just requiring a, a takeaway coffee before they go to their offices. They're just thinking, eh, this is more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> was he personally violent or did he get underlings to commit violence on his behalf? Oh, incredibly violent. I mean, incredibly violent at a personal level. So with his own family members, he was incredibly violent, but also not opposed to picking up a gun and, and letting rip. Yeah, he had probably the best in the business in terms of hitmen at his side. That was Stan Smith, but not opposed to letting rip with uh, be it a machine gun or a pistol, whatever whatever came to hand. You mentioned there he grew up in Balmain in the what, 30s, I suppose. That's what he would have been born into, Balmain, 20s or 30s or yeah. thereabouts. Balmain was a very different place. What was it like back in those days? Well, Balmain was, was a dock village, you know. it was it, So stuff came through and went out. And so that's a perfect spot to commit a bit of crime. Len was born in 1921, so by the time he's 11 or 12, we're in the middle of the Great Depression, which, of course, hit Australia very, very hard. And Balmain was this thriving opportunity. We see it everywhere. Wherever the docks are, there'll be a lot of crime because you can pinch a lot of stuff, you can make things disappear, and you can make a a living out of just pawning gear. What was his relationship with his mother like? Well, Len was getting pinched at a very early age. Should we, can, we, can we call it an accelerated uh, state of criminal development? And so he, his first pinch was at 11, and he was just a, basically a career criminal by the time he's in his teens. And his mother was, was an honest, God-fearing woman who didn't really want to have a bar of him because he was constantly in trouble with police. Later in his early adulthood, he turned up on his mother's doorstep with a rabbit not not a pet, but but a rabbit to be to be killed and eaten and prepared for the table. And his mother had basically said, I don't want to have anything to do with you, Len. That's it. You know, I don't want to see you ever again. So he ripped the rabbit's head off and and, and basically sprayed the blood around around the front door and all over his mother. And I think that was the last time his mother had anything to do with him after that. You've talked in the past about how one of the connecting threads between some of Sydney's and Melbourne's most vicious criminals was that at some point in their boyhood or early teens, they were sent to some vile boys' penitentiary. Was that true for him as well? Oh, absolutely. Len McPherson, he goes to Mount Penang, which is in the central coast, Mount Penang Juvenile Correction Centre, as a 13-year-old, so very, very young to move into that environment where essentially it was a Borstal system, something that we'd adopted from the Brits, where the most senior kids, 16 and 17-year-olds, would meet out the discipline under the watchful eye of the guards. So if you enter there when you're 13, you're especially vulnerable, uh, as Len did, and he was subject to physical and sexual abuse by guards, by uh, fellow older inmates, and he talked about it publicly most of his life. So, you know, we do see this. It happened with Flannery. It happened to Chow Hayes. It happened to his partner, Stan Smith. It happened to George Freeman as well. And there's a whole host of these people who've gone through really traumatic experiences and the effect with McPherson, like Stan Smith, for example, was that they came out full of rage when they, when they were in, in their adulthood. I mean, basically every major criminal figure from the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, you could almost be guaranteed that they would have had an experience, a pretty awful experience uh, in, in a boy's home. But that's not to say that that was the consequence of sort of sexual abuse. Many people who suffer that kind of awful abuse withdraw from society. These guys decided, you know, someone like McPherson decided, well, I've been a victim and now society's going to be a victim. So he's been incarcerated by a state-run institution mm-hmm. where he's been repeatedly sexually assaulted by older boys and perhaps even guards. And perhaps even guards, And yes. so he's, he's got a dim view of society when he comes out then. Oh, he's a very angry man. He's a very, very angry man. And he realises that the system that's incarcerated him is a really broken, corrupt system. Uh, and that's the other lesson that he's learned through this. So he's full of rage, and that rage would basically 
as he gets into his middle uh, middle years, that would start to dissipate. But in that blinding sort of 20s to 30s, he was an extraordinarily violent man, extraordinarily violent towards his wife, towards his peers, um, but also learning the ability of of using violence as a tactic with other criminals. A big man, a big frightening man, and capable of great violence. So he might have just been a standover man, but how did he expand his criminal horizons once he got out of that system and came into adulthood, Jack? Well, he he was a terrible thief, firstly. So he was always stealing, and that was, as I say, part of that whole Balmain experience. You could just knock stuff off from from the docks. And so that's where he got a number of pinches. But then into his early adulthood, he starts carrying weapons, he starts carrying firearms, He's also getting pinched for things like safe breakings and break and enters and things like that. But there are really no consequences, you know, that he, he goes to prison for the firearms charge and for one particular break and enter, but there's a whole raft of crimes he's getting away with. And that comes back to his establishment of his role as an informer. He's learning very, very early in his 20s that I can get out of this. There will be no consequences for me because I can inform strategically against the people that were also involved. So they'll go away and I'll I'll stay out of jail. An informer to the police. This is his whole life is all about informing. I've spoken to sort of gangland figures or those on the periphery of it and they, no one knew. No one, actually, no one actually knew. By the 60s, he had established a very strong relationship with very senior police and it was a quid pro quo. I'll allow you to get the pinches. I'll allow you to get serious crooks put away and you, in, in turn, will look the other way. And I will give you, in order for you to look away, I will give you the best mail you can get as a police officer. There's a wonderful scene in the Australian TV series Blue Murder where one of Roger Rogerson's associates, played by Rick Carter, sidles up next to Nettie Smith and says, Roger's looking for a good crook. He thinks you're a good crook. Was Lenny McPherson a good crook in the fullest sense of the word for corrupt police detectives in Sydney in the post-war era? Oh, look, that's a wonderful series. And what they're actually relating to there, when, when they talk about Ned Smith getting the green light, in relation to him giving uh, perjured evidence at the uh, coronial inquest into Warren Lanfranchi's death, they give him the green light. Len McPherson had got the green light in the early 1960s. There are a whole series of murders that McPherson committed and that's how he became a feared individual in the Sydney crime scene because he could commit murders and there would be no consequences. How did he become fascinated with the mafia in the United States, Jack? He was obsessed with Al Capone, wasn't he? Was, he was, yeah. He could read anything to do with Al Capone. He was, he was absolutely fixated with the sort of power that Capone had. He became enamoured to, to McPherson, who spent uh, a very early part of his life in 1951, went to the United States. And why did he go to the United States? Well, it was probably a look-see. We, we know that he established some what we might call embryonic relationships with organised crime uh, in places like Vegas and Chicago uh, at that time. God, it took a bit of chutzpah to do that, didn't it? I mean, to come out of Sydney, get on a plane to Vegas and maybe Chicago or wherever and go, how do I, how do I meet the uh, yeah, persuasive yeah, gentleman just, who's running this establishment? Just, just, you know? just get, off, get off the burner in Chicago in O'Hare Airport and go, now, where's the mafia? <laughs> um, I'd like to meet them. Take but me look, to Don Gambino, yeah. It, it's, a yeah. Little bit, it's a little bit more specific than that. And um, we'll talk a little bit about his mentor, and that was Paddles Anderson. And Anderson had uh, also a very a, a strong fixation about the organisational structures of the mafia, and he thought he could adapt those to make it work in, in Sydney and more broadly in Australia. So Anderson did have those contacts, and McPherson, through Anderson, was able to, to go over there and, and at least say hello. This says, Australia. this says something about Lenny McPherson's intelligence too, I think. Listening to some of the, uh, the ABC archives where he's being interviewed, he makes several interesting literary references which suggest he was a good reader and reader of good gear too. Like he's, I don't know what he's reading in jail, John Updike or something like yeah, that, but, yeah. but, but he seems to have had uh, a fair bit of imagination and drive in order to 
want to propel himself out of like being a standover man, petty criminal activities, yep. safe breaking and the like, and to become, a, I suppose, what was the equivalent of a don. And, and this is what the relationship with Paddles Anderson actually drove. And Paddles Anderson was the, God only knows how he got the name, one suspects not for very good reasons, but it was <laughs> Fred Paddles Anderson. And he was the one really who, who created the sort of structural organisation around the team, which was, as we said before, the triumvirate of Stan Smith, George Freeman, Len McPherson. And he was sort of almost, a, you know, a, above that himself. Like a mentor? Yeah, like a mentor. I mean, Anderson had a significant criminal history himself. He was charged with murder in, 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 in Melbourne and, and thought, well, if it doesn't go well for me, he was bailed. And he got, you know, came to the court to hear the jury's verdict. And he said, so brought a gun with him. He thought if he's going to be found guilty, he'd just shoot his way out. Out of the courtroom. Out of the courtroom. He brought a gun into the courtroom. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, the jury, do you have your verdict? And you could just see him reaching into his jacket, not guilty, Your Honour, and, oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> Where are my cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's, uh, oh, that, that's all well and good then. Um, and, and an extortionist of considerable brutality was Anderson. But he was so highly regarded by, by his peers, um, Anderson could could make things happen. He was insightful. He was perceptive. He was a person who, you know, was was grand company as well. And so Anderson drove this and taught people like McPherson. McPherson has learned those lessons that Anderson has put about. For a long while, Lenny McPherson said he was no Mr Big at all. He was a humble, humble man. motel owner-manager. What was this motel in Balmain that he was running, Jack? What was going on with Oh, that, that was just a front. It was just a front. I mean, I don't know that he ever spent any time there. He may well have. He may well have used it as a meeting place and so forth, but the, you know, the place would have had managers. It would have had, uh, would have had staff. Uh, but McPherson's running around pulling extortion rackets to developers, to construction companies, pay us or bad things are going to happen to your construction site. The first murder that's often associated with him is the murder, as you say, of a man named Joseph Hackett. Yes. In 1959. Tell me about how this murder took place. He was lured to a to a place in Leichhardt and shot dead. Um, Why had Hackett earned his attention? Well, again, it was another challenge. You know, uh, uh, Hackett was a was a similar sort of type, a potential rival. Uh, there'd been some bad blood, and McPherson and one of his uh, long-time associates, a bloke by the name of Snowy Rayner, uh, are believed to have shot Hackett dead. But the most important thing about the, the murder of Hackett was not so much who did it, and it was definitely Len and probably Snowy Rayner, but also what happened afterwards. They were both fairly quickly charged. Ultimately, Lem was bailed, which is an extraordinary thing in itself, given his criminal background up until this, you know, he's got stealing, firearms offences, all sorts of things. And he's been charged with a violent murder. Yeah. <laughs> he's been bailed. Yeah, he's been you bailed. Know, hello, right. New South Wales yes. uh, criminal justice system. And then there's no bill. It just disappears. The, the charges were dropped. The charges were dropped. And the rumour is that McPherson made a payment directly to the Attorney General at the time, paid him $10,000 towards his retirement fund, and the, the matter was no billed. So that's a really important moment. So McPherson's learning, oh, I can get out of even the tightest situations. I've got some audio here of Lenny McPherson being interviewed on this day tonight in the, in the 1970s on alleged rackets in the uh, poker machine industry in the New South Wales clubs. Where are the rackets? Uh, would they be in poker machines or in the entertainment booking of artists? Dishonesty. Well, if we go into rackets, if we're going to go into rackets, how did the poker machines come into the country? I didn't bring them here, and I'm accused of all this sort of thing. As far as I'm concerned, take them all out of the country. Now, I want them here. I demand that we send it back out of the country. So <laughs> do that. I, I don't want them. Yeah. I don't, I don't want them. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. Get they're, rid they're of a blight on the social landscape. Can, can a, a very, very early uh, poker uh, or gambling reformer was Len McPherson. Len McPherson. So yeah. let me ask you this question, Jack. Can we take Lenny at his word here that he doesn't want poker machines in uh, the state of New South Wales? Well, he, he, he said that he was accused of bringing them here. Mm. And that's almost certainly true. Uh, perhaps not all of them, and the old, you know, one, uh, what do they call them? One-armed bandits. One-armed yeah. bandits. Mm. Yeah, he, he, he brought a lot of them into the country. 
But what we had in those days was that licensed clubs, leagues, clubs and others would have a bank of poker machines that people would play and that was the, you know, the pool of them. And for, for Len, the big money spinner, was to skim off their profits. So people are pumping their five cents, their, their two cents and their one cents and their, and their 10 cents and their 20 cents in. And every day, a league's club like South Juniors, which was one of the biggest at the time, if not the biggest, uh, would have to count all the change. And Len would come in and just scoop 10% of that money and put it in his pocket. He and had, there's no record of this, is there? He had people right. with suits... That, that, that could actually take enormous amounts of change and they'd sort of waddle out of the club at night. <laughs> what rattling when yeah, yeah, <laughs> You know, it's all of a sudden put on 40 or 50 kilos. And, 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 you know, that was the way it was. And how was the money being counted? There was a scene in the movie Dirty Deeds which sort of mm. draws on the life of Lenny McPherson where the change is being counted in a back room by a whole group of topless women. That's right. Was that... Was that true? And if so, why would women be topless well, while they were counting money? Is that they, just for the titillation of the men? Feel, they might Yes, yeah, maybe, maybe it was done a little bit for the movies. It's a hell of a film, by the way. But if you're bare-chested, you haven't got any pockets to slide those 20-cent pieces in. <laughs> so that, that was the whole point. And, of course, anyone who did skim the skim, so le- there was Lenny Skim, right? and anyone who was involved in skimming the skim... Uh, was in real trouble. And, and did that happen? Well, it did, yes. And I heard a story from a friend of mine. It was a fellow who used to be a, a car dealer and he told the story about how a fellow car, car dealer had once been the general manager at, uh, well, a, a prominent uh, leagues club in Sydney and he'd been skimming the skim. He'd set himself up with his own little jacket that he could slide 20 cents and 10 cent pieces into and waddle off into his car and... And spend it all. And it became obvious to Len McPherson, who turned up at this very large leagues club one morning with Snowy Rayner in in tow, and they marched up to the GM's office, told him what they knew that he'd been up to. He pleaded basically for mercy. Snowy Rayner just stepped forward and just stabbed him. And that that was their way of saying... Your services have been terminated. Right. Uh, so he wasn't killed by the stabbing. He wasn't then. killed. He, no. he, he toddled off back to his car bleeding and, and drove himself to hospital. And the reason I know this story is that this friend of mine who ran the sort of Parramatta Car Road dealership, Snowy Rayner had come into the car yard when the former GM was working there selling cars and just went very, very pale and said to said to my uh, my friend, and he just said, look, I'm just going to go and hide in the toilet <laughs> and let me know when he's gone. And Snowy Rayner was just going in there to have a look at cars, so he, he, he told it off and uh, a very relieved former general manager of a, a big, powerful leagues club breathed a huge sigh of relief. Jack, a lot of hardened crims in Australia were surprisingly good family men, like Chow Hay, as we've talked about. You know, he was a t- yes. terrible killer, but... Just to go home to the wife, love the wife. Yeah. So what about Lenny McPherson? Was he much of a family man? How was he with his wife? We get back to this blinding rage, Richard. And so his first wife, he was not a good husband in any respect uh, and was known to be having affairs all around the place, affairs where he had you know, fathered children. And his wife protested, just, you know, <laughs> said, this is not the way a married life is supposed to be. And so he arrived home late. A meal had been prepared. The old roast leg of lamb had been prepared for him and it was uh, overcooked because he'd arrived home late. And a fight ensued. McPherson shot the leg of lamb. I think blasted it. He shot the leg of lamb? Shot the leg of lamb. And that was the only comical part of this um, because then he proceeded to beat his wife mercilessly. She was severely beaten, suffered very serious injuries, and uh, she had wanted to and, and did report the matter to police. And a charge of attempted murder was on the books for McPherson. And it led to the intervention. Again, McPherson was being told that there were no consequences for his most appalling behaviour. Ray Kelly intervened, and in order for the charges to be dropped, which should have led to an attempted murder charge for McPherson, she was guaranteed safe passage out of the state, and that's how Len's first marriage ended. Tell me the story of the day he got married to his second wife, Marlene, and what took place on that wedding day. This is kind of a famous incident. We've touched on briefly in the past, but tell me what happened on this day of 
the wedding to his second wife, Marlene, in 1963, Jack. And, and he and Marlene had a very long and happy life, I believe. So this is completely contrary to his first marriage. They get married. They get married in Balmain. There are at least 100 guests. They attend the service. And then they disappear. Then when I say they, not, not the married couple, uh, McPherson and his best man, Stan Smith, disappear. What had happened? There'd been an incident. Smith had been wounded in a gunfight with a crook by the name of Robert Walker, Pretty Boy Walker. This is 1963. And so he went into hiding and the information came through, most inconveniently, on the day that Lenny was marrying his new wife, Marlene. And so in between the service and the reception, Smith and McPherson took off from the wedding in their penguin suits and drove off to a location in Kingsford where they changed, they grabbed another car, they drove up to the motel where Walker was supposed to be there. They, they found that he wasn't there, so they drove off and then they basically just driving around Randwick thinking, oh, we better get back, and then they saw Walker. And he was shot in a hail of machine gun fire, almost certainly fired by a McPherson. Machine gun fire? This is broad daylight. On the, on the streets of Randwick. Yeah, broad daylight. In broad is, daylight. This is about five o'clock in the afternoon. And he's ducked out of his wedding to do this. Yeah, ducked out of his wedding basically very close to the Randwick Racecourse. You know, there's people going everywhere. And then they just drive back to Kingsford, change back in the penguin suits, back in time for the speeches. And what? when you think about it, it's perfect. Who's going to know he was missing? Who's going to know Smith was missing? Oh, they popped out to have some photos taken. But I saw them there all the time. I saw them at the service. I saw them at reception. Surely no human being could, could leave even a contemplate, wedding, some, contemplate some, such a yeah, heinous thing. Such a happy day to go out and commit a murder and... And that's exactly what Lane did. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Jack, before you were telling me the story of how in 1963, Lenny McPherson ducked out of his own wedding, his own wedding to his second wife, with his associate Stan Smith, to gun down a rival, Pretty Boy Walker, on the streets of Randwick, in broad daylight, was there a sensation in the media with this? I mean, the fact oh, that absolutely. someone had been shot down by yeah. machine gun fire in the middle of the day in Randwick. Yeah, there was a great, great house of outrage in the media, of course. So who led the police investigation into this? Well, there's Ray crime. Kelly again. Ray Machine Gun Kelly. Right, let me just tell you that that 1963 murder of, of Robert Pretty Boy Walker remains unsolved. What was said by Kelly, and they, they, they start maintaining this stop these very public executions because it really riles up the, the public and, and the media get all over it. So this is around about the time where Kelly starts telling McPherson and others, if you're going to kill a gangland figure in this sort of philosophy they had of catch and kill your own, then make them disappear. Don't shoot them in a hail of gunfire. It's a lesson that McPherson took a while to learn. 1966, Ronald Ryan was a prisoner in Pentridge and he escaped. Got out, famous case. Yes. At, while escaping, he's alleged to have shot dead a... And found well, guilty, yeah, found yeah, guilty convicted of, of it. Yeah. Uh, convicted of uh, shooting down a prison guard on his way out. Mm. This led to a huge manhunt. Eventually, he will be caught and hanged. He was the last man to be executed in Australia. What role did Lenny McPherson play in the capture of Ronald Ryan in 1966, Jack? One of the reasons it was explained that uh, Ron Ryan escaped was uh, because his wife was seeking divorce proceedings against him. So he thought if he could get out, then he could re-establish this relationship. And after the shooting of the guard and after a subsequent armed robbery and after a subsequent uh, murder in a park in, in Melbourne, in Albert Park in Melbourne, that clearly could not happen in Melbourne or Australia. 
And Ryan clung to this idea. Ryan and Walker had both spent some time in Sydney and knew their way around the criminal world there. They drove up to Sydney in a stolen car, made their way up to Hume, and they made contact with Lem McPherson in order to obtain passports and, and plane tickets out of the country under false names. And they would travel from there to Brazil and live uh, a new life of reunification with the, right, the uh, Ronnie Biggs life, in other words. Yeah. It's sort of a Ronnie yeah. Biggs life, and there were, as we found out with Biggs, uh, no no uh, extradition rights with Australia or indeed uh, the UK. Okay. Who could yeah. make that happen? And and the answer was McPherson. So, it, and so it was agreed that they would do the exchange of cash and and passports at Concord Private Hospital at a certain time, certain day. And, and McPherson put the phone down. The first call he made was to Ray Kelly and said, I know where Ryan and Walker will be. It was an arrest. It was a, a non-incident arrest. There were 50 armed police officers. They didn't stand a chance and there was no incident. And afterwards it was claimed them the Victorian police couldn't, you know, he just, Ryan and Walker had slipped through. But Ray Kelly, and Ray Kelly had affected the arrest. And he said afterwards to this sort of, throng of media, many of whom sort of clung on every word that Ray Kelly said, like he was this kind of superhero of crime fighting. Right, a genius sleuth. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he said, I love a hunt, but the best hunt is a manhunt. And they all sort of scribbled away. This is fantastic stuff, you know. And, and Ray Kelly's reputation as a police officer who could get the hard things done just, just went through the stratosphere after the arrest of Ryan and Walker. The so, biggest manhunt in Australian history. But yeah. really all he'd happen, had happened oh, was, was oh, take a phone call. Concord, Concord how do you spell that? Uh, Concord Hospital. You know, that, he just took down the details and, and arrived with 50 armed officers. And, and what do you think the quid pro quo for that is? What is the quid pro quo for that? Len, you can do whatever you like. That's the green the light. The only thing you can't do, and this became famous in Blue Murder, is the only thing you can't do is threaten or pull a weapon or harm a police officer. Other than that, open slatter, including murder. So that's the green light. This is the, this is the green light that was offered to Ned Smith. Len McPherson had it really predating the Ryan and Walker stuff, but certainly was on for young and old from, from 1966. Lenny McPherson was often asked about his connections to the Chicago Mafia, and this is what he said when this was put to him. What about your friendship with Joseph Dan Tester? The Commonwealth Police believe he's a member of the Chicago Crime Syndicate. Well, I uh, say that that is completely wrong. I went away with him solely to go shooting. But with Tester, we laughed from the time I met him till the time we finished the shooting. You're not worried that he has this reputation of being involved with the Mafia or the organised crime syndicate? Well, he isn't involved with the Mafia. The Commonwealth Police uh, seem to think he is. Yes, because they don't know what time of the day it is. <laughs> So, so Jack, who is this Joe Tester he's talking about and what is this shooting expedition that he's speaking of? There? All right. So Joe, Joe Tester is a Chicago underboss and the Chicago mob at the time, its real influence was starting to wane. You might know the name of Sam Giancana. He was basically into everything and that included running countries, you know, running Central American military dictatorships. He had a big so say on. in how Cuba was run for a long while too. He did indeed. He? Yeah. And there are stories of his boasts about you know, being involved in the assassination of John, of John F. Kennedy. Mm. So he'd taken, had they taken an interest in what was going on in Sydney? Well, Tester did. And, and Tester, as I say, was, was next level. I, I must just say, by, by this stage, Gene Carner has fled. He was, he was required to give evidence at a grand jury, did, and then realised they were asking some really hard questions. So he basically fled to Central America and, and, and only returned to be killed uh, in the 70s. But Tester was an underboss and there must have been that 1950s connection, but I'm not entirely sure about that. But certainly Freeman, Smith and McPherson had regular excursions to the United States. They were fated. Tester thought Smith was the funniest man of all time, this guy with the cold grey eyes, you know, this multiple killer, and he'd tell these stories and and have the mafia guys all rolling around. It was decided that 
Tester would come to Australia and Tester had looked at the skim. They knew how skims worked in casinos. They were doing it in Vegas. He and Tester were conspiring to provide a, a monopoly of machines from the Bally Company. They would buy Bally machines exclusively and that would, that would be kicking back to Joe Tester and Len McPherson. So that's what that was all about. So McPherson and Smith had been over to the United States and had fated and shown a good time by, mm. these, by these figures from the Chicago mob. Right. What, what kind of a good time did they show Joey Tester when he came out to Australia? Well, they took him, took him out to um, uh, Central, uh, Central West. Uh, McPherson had a property uh, out past Forbes. And they took him pig shooting. And Tester was there with his sort of bodyguard or hired muscle. And there's this wonderful photo of them sort of looking a little bit, I mean, looking very hot. They're just in their shorts. <laughs> Tester's got a pair of white um, slip-ons, you know. Loafers. Uh, loafers. He's got his loafers on, you know, in, in the central western New South Wales, middle of nowhere. And, and there's McPherson sort of with a gun that looks like almost a toothpick in his hand, high-powered rifle, that, and the others are sort of sweating away, uh, sweating away, lugging their rifles, and you sort of look at this photo and go, now, who looks more comfortable with the, with the firearm in their hand? And it was definitely Len just looking back going, here's some guys I know. And so they, he took them out pig shooting. Now, the film says that this was a sort of terrifying episode that told the mafia to stay away from Australia for good, but it's not quite what happened. Uh, in the end... The Bally deal didn't come through and Joe Tester was blowing up in his car in Florida and had his arm and leg blown off in a car explosion and police, and he, he, he remained uh, living for a number of days after the explosion. Police came to him and said, do you know, do you know anybody who would do this? And he goes, well, there's a big, there's a big list. Basically, <laughs> there were quite a lot of people who wanted him dead. Now, you mentioned there that Lenny McPherson had a property in central New South Wales, mm. but he also had a house in Sydney's lower North Shore. Now, I ran recently into the great crime journalist Kate McClymer, oh, yes. and she was telling me that Lenny McPherson had a house that was conspicuous or unconspicuous because it had no number, no, no number. street number on the front of it. No number. C- can you explain why Lenny had no number on the front of his house. Well, he thought it would give someone a heads up, you know, if they're, they're going to drive past. Uh, what, a, yeah, what did Australia Post Australia Post had sent out, this was a sort of national campaign, you know, help your postie, make your, your house number nice and clear in the front of your home or at your letterbox. Nice and visible, right. Nice and visible. And yep. let's say Lenny lived at number 21, but there was no number there. So he got a letter right. from this from Australia Post, having not responded to the campaign and done the right thing and, and helped his postie, and got this letter saying, please, can you, you know, sort this out? It was actually so nice, they actually included numbers, so, you know, adhesive numbers that you could put on your letterbox so he wouldn't have to worry, he wouldn't have to go down to the hardware store or anything Bunnings. like this. Right. Right. <laughs> a couple of numbers. Yeah. Right. And so he was so outraged by this, he rang up the local post office, the Glazeville Post Office, and... Uh, and and wanted to speak to someone in charge, and someone came on the line and said, you know, what do you want? To, what do you want me to do? Always complain. Had this persecution complex. We've already said, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, I'm a, I've got people out there trying to kill me. And <laughs> he's telling the local post, post office this. There are people out there trying to kill me, and they said, well, if they're going to kill you, wouldn't they? They go to see number nineteen first, and then twenty three after that, and go well. That must be 21 in in the middle there, so I'll go there. And he goes, yeah, but by that time I'll be ready. (laughs) These incredibly strange conversations. I know. uh, They're probably trying to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the conversation the the local (laughs) postal manager was thinking he or she would be having it done on that day. Tell me how in the uh, it was the 60s or 70s, Lenny McPherson managed to attract the attention of Richard Neville and Oz magazine, the kind of ratbag magazine yeah. uh, Richard Neville's running. Look, after receiving some information from a couple of journalists also at the Australian in those very early days, uh, they had decided to uh, publish a who's who of the criminal uh, of the underground in, in, in Sydney, who's who of the crimin- criminals in, in the zoo in Sydney. And they had listed McPherson at number one and described him as a... A fence and fizz gig. And a fizz gig in the, in the parlance is an informer. You fizz on someone. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a great Australianism, <laughs> largely gone now, but, but, you know, certainly in that, in, that, in that criminal lexicon, he was a fizz gig. And this is a really bad thing to, 
to have people discover about you. Because he said he'd kept this under wraps. He, he was certainly, McPherson uh, didn't want this to be known and it was highly dangerous information for him. Oz had gone out, it had sold out. One of uh, one of uh, McPherson's enemies, Jackie Steele, had bought 40 copies and he was handing them out in pubs. Now, look at, look at McPherson. End up, Jackie Steele was shot, probably because of it. So Richard Neville in Oz has identified Lenny McPherson as a police informant on, yeah. in the pages of Oz magazine. In pages of this sort of student rag. Right, you know? this lively thing, and it's all true, of course. So what did Lenny do about all this? Well, I interviewed Richard Neville about this and, and um, before his death, and, and he said he was sort of in his little Paddington Pierre de Terre one Saturday morning, flapping around, and he was getting ready to go to the theatre. So it's late morning. And there was a knock on the door and, <laughs> and he opens the door and it's Len McPherson standing there. On his doorstep. Can I come in? We'll have a, I, I need to have a chat. He was very polite, but he was also quite forceful. He's, you know, I'm not, I'm not just going to wait outside in the door. Right, and he took up most of the door frame. So, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. So, so they had a conversation. Neville said, look, he was definitely intimidated by it, but he, but at the same time, McPherson was quite polite, he was quite a bane. And what did he say to, to No, and he said, look, I, I, you know, I'm not a fizz geek. I am not an informer. You, you need to clarify that in subsequent editions. And uh, you need to be very careful about using these terms. I know you're a young bloke. Neville said, how did you get my address? He goes, oh, I got it off a... You know, one of your fellow students, he gave it to me and was like, oh, okay. But it would have been obtained by police for sure. So he, so, so, in the end, McPherson said, well, okay, well, I've had, had this conversation with you now. Not a fizz gig. Make sure you clarify that. <laughs> and, uh, and and off he went and, and, and Neville sort of started breathing a, a sort of sigh of relief. He was due to go to the cinema and McPherson stopped before he got out of the door. He goes, would you like a lift in a town? And, um, <laughs> you know, oh, no, look, I'll, I'll be right. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you. Sure, because I can give you a lift. And uh, there, one suspects that he had a begot in that car. He might not have got out in one piece anyway. So this is McPherson. He's a killer. He can shoot down someone oh. with a hail of bullets. But he also he also knows how to practice a much more subtle form of intimidation. Yeah, that's just basically psycho- psychological um, stuff. I mean, so, I, so is that the point of that visit? Is just to say, yeah. I've got your address. Yeah. I can find you wherever you are, <laughs> any any time of the day or night. I can grab you. By the 1970s, Lenny McPherson had no rivals. He'd arranged, killed he'd, them all. he'd killed them all. And he had no rivals. He could act with pretty much with impunity. How did he eventually end up in prison, Jack? Well, the, the, the murders go throughout the 60s. They, there's just a whole list of unsolved murders. We go all the way into the 1980s to Chris Flannery. There's all these unsolved murders. But uh, he's allegedly had some hand in or direct, but everyone direct in input, the, yeah. Yeah, but everyone in the underworld knows that, right. you know, McPherson, Smith and Freeman are responsible for these things. So they are the power. There are other gangs moving along, but they were all subjugated by the team. So was he eventually caught and convicted of one of these murders? No, no, no nothing serious. In fact, he hadn't been pinched since his 20s. <laughs> Despite being involved in quite a lot of crime, he had not been pinched for, for the best part of 50 years. So what was he done for in the end? He was done with conspiracy to commit assault. And, and look, he was frequently being um, the subject of telephone intercepts. Some of them were incredibly funny, by the way, where there were National Crime Authority officers who had the phones off of, uh, of Stan Smith. They were listening into Stan Smith's conversations. And Stan was this kind of very strange fellow, alternate health sort of guy. You know, he'd be. Well, he was a, into homeopathy. He'd be an anti vaxxer today, <laughs> you know? He would be an anti vaxxer. He'd be a freedom marcher. But in, but, but in those days, he had, used to have all these sort of, you know, bio cures and, and, and amino acids right. and all this kind of he was, nonsense. He's right? into superfoods. Never saw right. a doctor. To his credit, he right. did live a very long life. Right. Um, he'd but, be having kale sandwiches for lunch, that sort yeah. of thing, right. So, yeah. so, so with right. his phones off, he'd ring up McPherson and he used this sort of code. Um, um, he used this kind of a, a code to assure anonymity, which McPherson never seemed to get because they'd say, oh, you want to meet at that place, you know, that place, that time where we had the thing. And, and he'd go, what do you mean, like, like the railway hotel? And he'd go, no, 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 and put the phone down. But a lot of the conversations related to <laughs> Len and Stan's bowel movements. 
Uh, and so then, because in this and kind the police of, are listening in on this. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. No, they're just cracking up, right. rolling around the floor in Newport, listening just up the road, standing was having these conversations, and it was based on, I guess, this sort of faux uh, medical science that if your um, if your bowels are moving well, you're travelling quite well. So, so the conversations would start was, you know, how was your Bowel movement, obviously, in, in harsher terms. How was your bowel movement this morning, Len? And Len would go, oh, buddy, good one, good one. And that's how they'd start their conversation. Because Len, I mean, Stan was sort of concerned about Len's health for because he looked, you know, he didn't look after himself like Stan did and so forth. So, yeah, that was how the questions often started. But uh, one telephone intercept, and this was much later, this is now in the 90s or late 1980s, where, where it was very clear that McPherson had, had issued a threat to other criminals to pursue a former business partner who he believed had dudded him over the distribution rights for a, a very popular brand of bourbon. And he uh, had conspired basically to have this former business partner's legs broken. Uh, and it was all on recording and so forth. So he was arrested and convicted of it and was sentenced as a quite elderly fellow by this stage. He was, he was sentenced in 1994 uh, to four and a half years jail uh, and spent his time in Cessnock Prison. He was brought before a coronial inquiry into the disappearance of Christopher Dale Flannery, the notorious yes. Melbourne hitman, mm-hmm. whose nickname was Rantikill, who whose character appears in the series Blue Murder. Uh, and in fact, I think you've said previously that there, there are all kinds of allegations. You were there at that coronial inquest. You attended it in the media section of, of the courtroom. What was it like seeing Lenny McPherson being pulled out of jail to appear at this coronial inquest, Jack? It was a very funny thing. And I often would sit there as a guest until some one of the crooks there complained and I had to go and sit with the media and then, you know, I was sort of, you know, cast out. But it was a sort of, it was the oddest sort of inquest and it was like a an old gangster's reunion. You know, they'd, they'd, even former enemies would sort of slap each other on the back and when, and when the coroner would adjourn for lunch, they'd all go and have a counter lunch together and I'd sort of follow them up. And So this and, is like the 90s and so this, yeah, is, the, so this the, is the 90s. And their their era is done. Right, and their era is gone at this yeah, point, effectively. Yeah, and, and there were some fantastic performances. It was almost like watching a sort of cabaret. And then McPherson arrived and just the persecution complex, which we've already sort of heard from, you know, he had this massive persecution complex and, and you know, the coroner Greg Glass said, look, I hope you're going to behave yourself here today, Mr McPherson. He'd be carted in by prison van and he'd wait in the cells downstairs to be called. And, and he'd just start asking the coroner this, you know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I oh, two wheat bits. Two wheat bits. And there's <laughs> this kind of terrible crime against him personally. And, uh, and, 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 and Glass would say, look, we're just going to have to get rid of you. I had him sent to the cells on one, one occasion. He came back. And then he started complaining about his knee. He got a bad knee, crook knee. You know, they're going to they're operate on me, you know, through the prison system. And he goes, that probably leave me a cripple. And <laughs> probably leave me a cripple. All while he's intended to answer. There are a lot of senior police. Uh, a former senior police who believed that, that, that McPherson was Flannery's shooter. I don't. I believe it was actually Stan Smith, but it may well have been McPherson. And while Flannery was out of control in 1984-85, McPherson was known to wear the carpet thin at his home, peering out through the Venetians and, and jotting down licence plate numbers to give to the police to see who they were. So he was really in a bad way. That's why I don't think he was the was Flannery's shooter. I don't think he would have had the the bottle to look Flannery in the eye and blow him away. So he died in Cessnock Prison in 1996. Yeah, complaining about it. Complaining, bitching about the wheat mix <laughs> and the, the bad knee and all of that. God and, that. and his bowel movements and yeah. everything else. And God. <laughs> yeah, well, God only knows what his <laughs> bowel movements were like by this stage. So, so, he, so he, he's dead in 1996. And it was said that his funeral by one of the speakers said that not everyone would have liked what Lenny did in the course of his life, but at least it can be said he reached the very top of his profession. He did indeed, yeah. He, look, perhaps not Mr Big. The big man was bigger, Mr Big enough. And his life was really, you know, it, it's an important part of social history, firstly, that, that his career traverses that period from, you know, from Tilly Devine and, and Kate Lee and the Razor Gangs and traverses that sort of Chow-Hayes period and all the way up to the 1980s where organised crime in Australia is becoming very sophisticated 
the big heroin traffickers are moving in and so the big transnational syndicates are being uh, still some years away from establishing. McPherson never had anything to do with drugs. Stan Smith did, uh, but Freeman didn't either because they thought that their political support, their uh, police support would sort of run a mile and and then their uh, their support within the judiciary as well. They probably would have too. So he covers that whole period then, Jack, from the... uh, the, the Depression era, Razor Gang mm. era, all the way up to the end of the Blue Murder era, if yeah. you like, and we get to the the kind of professionalisation of organised crime yeah, yeah. in the 1990s, 2000s, and from there on. That's he right. covers that entire period. Yeah. If there, are, if there is a lesson to be learned, I know it's a bit of a silly phrase, but if there is a lesson to be learned by the life of Lenny McPherson and how he was able to entrench himself into such a powerful position in public life into Australia, what is that lesson to your mind? Well, if, if, if there's no public confidence in police, if the police are not doing their jobs properly, then McPherson would not have existed as a prominent figure. He would have gone to jail as a very young man for murder and stayed in jail most of his life. But instead, he learnt the lessons of, of corruption and of patronage of police officers, of corrupt police officers, and he learnt that he could basically get away with anything. And he understood the rules... You don't go in the police lane, you pay the police, you keep them sweet, you give them good information that allows them to make arrests and adds to their considerable reputations that we saw with the Ryan and Walker thing. So this is, you know, if we look at that Hackett murder all the way back in 1959, uh, if we look at that and say, if had McPherson gone down then, he just would have been an old man tottering out of jail in 1975, um, broken by the system, completely institutionalised. But instead with the way New South Wales policing was, with figures like Kelly, and then he was a mentor of Roger Rogerson, who would take things probably to another level. McPherson knew and understood the nature of the relationship. When I mentioned that police officer before who interviewed him in cafes, it was one of those things that this was a this was an honest police officer. So he would communicate with him routinely. In fact, he assisted and provided what information he could, and it wasn't much in regard to the uh, in regard to the shooting of the assistant commissioner of ACT police, Colin Winchester, because they they knew they had to play along. But he also knew that this particular police officer was straight up and down. The others you had to play this torturous game with, otherwise they'd pinch you, verbal you, put you away. But they wouldn't do that with Len because Len was always going to give them gold. He was always going to give other criminals up and allow himself to just flourish and prosper in that scene. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, Jack. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's just been great. Great fun. Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. And indeed, today's conversation with Jack Hoisted will be available for you on our website, and there are several other podcasts I've done with Jack over the years on other figures from Australia's criminal history. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Patrick Stack, and what I love about Conversations is the storytelling. We're trying to bring you a piece of that in our new podcast, ABC Sport Daily. It could drive him to neuroses if he didn't have that balance in his life. Each episode, we're going to give you the full story behind sport's biggest stories. Clarkson is obviously number one on everyone's wish list right now. We're talking to people in the know about stories you'll want to know. He's trying to retrain his brain so that doesn't happen overnight. It's seriously good, but we won't take ourselves too seriously. I know we hate talking about it, Stacky, but that's what the Queensland spirit is. One story each day in under 15 minutes. ABC Sport Daily, your daily sports conversation.